Good morning, everyone. Let us pray for the reading and preaching of God's word. Almighty God, source of all that is, shine in our lives this day. Banish the darkness of misunderstanding and confusion. Illumine our, our reading of your word that we may encounter the word made flesh and receive him and believe in him forever. Amen. A reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, then 27 through 31. The word of the Lord. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates leading into the city, at the entrances, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was the craftsman by his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marilyn. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. In your pew Bible, it's page 1513, 1513. Uh, in this uh, passage, Jesus is still trying to answer that question that we looked at last week that John the Baptist had raised. Uh, Jesus, are you the one, or should I be looking for someone else? Last week, we talked about doubt, about John the Baptist's doubt. At the worst moment of his life, at the worst day of his life, he, his faith was incredibly weak, but his weak faith was directed toward Jesus. And what matters is not the strength of your faith, but its direction, the one in whom you are believing. And so we talked last time about, about doubt uh, as a normal part of Christian experience. Today, Jesus is going to talk about a different kind of doubt, a doubt that is not doubt, but rather pure unbelief. Um, he's still trying to answer that question, but at this point, he's gone through uh, three towns in, in Israel, uh, in Palestine, proclaiming the good news and doing all sorts of miracles. He's been healing people. Lepers have become clean. People possessed by, by other spirits of some sort have been delivered. The dead have been raised. The sick have been cured. They've watched as people who were blind could see, as people who were deaf regained their hearing. Jesus, through his actions, showing again and again that I am the one who has come to reverse the fall, to bring back the world that was meant to be, to restore people to God, to reconcile you to God as the one who has the power to make the cosmos back what it ought to have been and to give you back everything that has been taken from you, everything, the life God intended you to have to restore that, that you might have life and have it to the full. He says, I've come to be your sin bearer, to bring radical grace to you, to get you off your performance treadmill so that you can be whole and complete by being reconciled to God, my Father, through me. Three towns, Capernaum, Bethsaida, 
uh, and uh, oh, whatever the other one is. We're going to read it here in a minute. Three towns, though, he's gone through and he's done all of these miracles. And the response has been unbelief. Rejection. They're interested in the miracles. They're not interested in the one doing them. Here's what we're wondering. Why in the face of such incredible evidence could people then look at Jesus and reject him? Matthew 11, verses 16 through 24. You can follow along. This is Jesus speaking the very words of Christ. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, these are pagan Phoenician cities, if I had done this in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and for Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. For if the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. I'm indebted to Tim Keller and very dependent on his exegesis of this passage. What is Jesus telling us? He's talking about kids playing dirges and playing flutes and people not dancing and people not mourning. He's talking about pagan, non-Jewish cities saying that they're going to be better off than the cities where Jesus performed all his miracles. What's he, what's he talking about? What's he doing? He, he's telling us something. First of all, he's telling us that unbelief is not the absence of something but it is the presence of something very, very powerful. This is what he's saying, you know, in verses 20 through 24 when he's comparing these cities to Sidon and and Tyre and, and Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the towns in which he taught. They disbelieved in the face of a world of evidence. Uh, you know, we know just a whole bunch of miracles that are performed that are recorded here in the gospel according to Matthew. And yet, when you get to the end of John's gospel, John puts in a note that in addition to all of those miracles that are recorded in the gospels, there are all sorts of other miracles. In every single town, he was curing just about all the diseases. Everybody was experiencing healing. It was incredible. I mean, we're talking about hundreds, possibly thousands of miracles being performed in the course of, of months, and, and yet still they rejected Jesus. You think, what would it take 
you're here this morning. What would it take for you to believe in Jesus just without a doubt? Jesus, I got you. Imagine leaving this morning. You're walking out to your car, and there's a terrible accident on Skinker Boulevard. You hear the sirens, all the traffic stopping, and you see there's a body out on the, on the ground, and it doesn't look good. You don't know what's happened, but you see a hand, and it's not attached to anything. And somebody stops, and they cry out, Jesus Christ, help us. And then you watch as that hand does something out of a 1960s, you know, family comedy. And it starts walking on its fingers back toward its body. And it jumps up in the air and it sucks itself back down onto that guy's arm. And he he pops up and he says, I'm healed. Jesus is saying, yeah, I did all that. And they didn't believe me. They still wouldn't turn to me. This is not the kind of doubt that comes from a lack of information. Jesus wasn't asking anybody to take a blind leap of faith. There are certainly plenty of people out there in the world who have never heard an actual intelligent presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior. And they have a right to ask very good questions, and they have a right to expect good answers. But that's not what's going on here. This is something that's going on at the heart level. Jesus is saying that unbelief is not just a lack of something, a lack of evidence, a lack of proof, but rather it is the presence of something. It's the presence of of something else, a positive power, something within our hearts that is afraid to follow Jesus, something in our hearts that feels threatened by the gospel of Jesus and therefore resists his message and resists his grace. Uh, Unbelief prevails over evidence. You know, you you take, for example, the end of Matthew's gospel, which we're going to get to someday, Lord willing, um, perhaps, but uh, the very last chapter, um, you know, where, where the disciples all go to meet the resurrected Jesus on top of a mountain. Uh, and he says, meet me there. And he's there. And at this point, Jesus has ha- appeared to the disciples so many times. He has appeared to them and let them touch him. He's appeared to them and eaten fish with them. And it explained, you know, ghosts can't eat fish. It would just pass right through the body and land on the floor. Ghosts probably couldn't even pick up a fish because it's not corporeal. He's saying, I'm not a ghost. I'm resurrected. I'm real. I'm alive. He began instructing them. He let them stick their fingers in the holes in his hands and in his feet to prove to him, no, it is I. He walked through walls. At this point, this is probably the 12th or 13th or 14th appearance of the resurrected Jesus at the end of Matthew to his disciples. And it says that the disciples, on seeing him 14th time, they bowed down and they worshipped Jesus as a god. But, it says, some doubted. Now, Some, in the face of all of that evidence, even at the end of the gospel, with all of these appearances of Jesus, they're still not sure. Yeah, Jesus, I don't know that I trust you. You know, and there's pretty much no way that that verse in Matthew 28 would be there unless that's actually what happened. Because, I mean, if you were Matthew and you were making up a religion together with 11 of your friends um, and you said, okay, we're going to make up just to really become convincing so that we can really have power over this new following that we're going to call the church, we're going to invent some, some resurrection stories just to give us added weight. And uh, so, you know, you'd figure, though, if that's what you were going to make up, then by the time you've made up the 14th appearance of Jesus and he's eating fish and he's sticking, people are sticking fingers in the holes in his body and they're touching him, uh, doing all of this to say, I'm Jesus and I'm really here, you'd figure, if you were making this up, that by that point they would have resolved their doubts. 
And yet, even in the midst of all of that, what we have written down is not something Matthew would have made up because you'd think that the evidence would have required them to believe Jesus by then. You, you'd never throw that in if you were imagining it. It wouldn't make sense. And besides, it makes the disciples look like total idiots, which if they're just trying to get power over people is not really a very intelligent move uh, strategically. But uh, it's counterintuitive if you're trying to gain new followers. But the only way Matthew would have written that down is because he actually remembered after all of these appearances, all of this evidence, all of this proof, being able to touch him, grab him, hug him, poke him, eat with him, watch the food go into him, hearing his voice, seeing his face, doing it not once, but then again and again and again and again. And 14 times by then, there were still people saying, I don't know if I believe in you, Jesus. Because, see, unbelief is not the absence of something. It is the presence of something very, very powerful. What is it? Unbelief is a smokescreen for the real issue of what's going on. Uh, He illustrates this, Jesus says, it's like a child having a temper tantrum. Uh, That's what's going on in verses 16 and 17, this whole thing about the flute and, and about, you know, the dirge, and you didn't mourn and you didn't dance. Okay, let's give it some cultural context here. Uh, imagine these are very small villages. Uh, some of them might be called cities, but city to them would be like the city of Valley Park. You know, these were not, this was not Jerusalem. These were what we would call small towns where everybody knew everybody and they didn't have internet, they didn't have smartphones, they didn't have apps, they didn't have television, they didn't have radio, they didn't have, you know, iPods or anything. All They couldn't get in a car and drive someplace interesting. Really villages, it was very boring in a village and yet children are children, and children invent games. Now, what are the kind of interesting things that did happen in an ancient Near Eastern village? Uh, see, a Palestinian village in the first century. The kinds of things that would happen uh, were, well, weddings. Weddings were exciting. Wedding was a seven-day party in which there was celebration. They were dancing, and you were playing flutes, and everybody get out on the dance floor. It was really amazing. It was beautiful. Everybody's having fun. And then the other thing that would happen is funerals, which if you're a small enough child is, is just as interesting because there are all these people, and they're playing, they're musicians, and they're playing dirges, you know. You know, it's, it's a dirge because when Darth Vader shows up, death has just entered the room. He's even wearing black. You know, there's a cultural context here. You play a dirge, and then everybody starts mourning. And in ancient Israel, that meant screaming and wailing and tearing clothing and crying until you're dehydrated and have to Gatorade because you've cried so much. These are huge, emotional, cathartic events. And on market day, hey, all the kids are in the village, and the parents, they're kind of busy, you know, marketing stuff and buying stuff, selling stuff, meeting with other adults who have come into the village, and there are all these kids together, and they start playing games. And what are the games they have to play? Let's play wedding. And then they start, you know, one of them's like, hey, I got a flute, hey, look at me, I played a flute, hey, everybody dance, and then everybody starts dancing. And they say, oh, no, 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 let's play, let's play funeral. Okay, they're making terrible noises and they're, they're, they can't rip their clothes because their parents will spank them or at least give them a really bad time out. And so, um, you know, and Jesus is saying what's going on with these three cities and the people in these three cities who are seeing the evidence of the Son of God being who he is, doing what he's doing. He says, and that they still don't believe, he says that it's sort of like that, only if you can imagine the kids say, 
you know, let's play wedding. And he starts playing his flute and all the kids get dancing. There's one kid sitting on the sideline saying, I hate weddings. Weddings are happy. I hate happy songs. And they say, okay, well, you hate happy songs. Then let's play funeral. And they all start, bah, 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 and Darth Vader's coming out and they're all weeping and wailing and pretending to tear their clothing so they don't get a timeout. And, and, and all of this is going on. And then that same kid is sitting there saying, I hate sad songs. I hate playing funeral. Played the flute, you wouldn't dance. Played the dirge, you wouldn't mourn. What's really going on? Some of you are parents. You have more experience with this sort of thing than I do. My experience is all on the child side. If you could imagine, you know, young little three-year-old Greg, this is a totally fictitious story, but young three-year-old Greg has his third birthday party, and mom and dad get all sorts of games together, and mom makes a big cake in the shape of a big brown teddy bear with, you know, jelly beans and, and M&Ms for eyeballs and a little corn cob doughs, and, and get all these other kids from around town, and everybody gets in the room, and they're like, and, 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 and uh, mom says, y- y'all want to play a game? And all the kids are saying, yeah, we want to play a game, let's play a game, let's play a game. And I'm, like, and I'm sitting there saying, I hate games. And say, okay, well, we could do cake. And all the kids are like, yeah, let's do cake, let's do cake. And I'm like, I hate cake. And those of you who are parents, you understand that the basic problem here is that you made me a completely inadequate cake. Now, what's the basic problem here? It's an issue of control. I want to be the one saying, let's play a game. And everybody's saying, okay. I want to be the one choosing to eat cake and deciding who else gets to eat cake with me. It gets into the heart issues. It's not a problem with the tune. It's not a problem with the flute. It's not a problem with the dirge. It's a problem with me. My own issues. You know, we tell ourselves it's the problem is the tune they're playing, but it's just a smokescreen. We're lying to ourselves. There's a reason under the reasons. Our excuses are a smokescreen that hides that real issue. Uh, and there's another layer here. Jesus says that this is why they rejected not only Jesus, but also John. He identifies John as the dirge. John came. What was his message? You all need to repent. You're horrible, rotten sinners. The kingdom of God is coming. You need a savior. And Jesus, he was the dance. He came promising eternal life. You can get right with God. I, I bring you blessing. The kingdom of God is upon you. And what was the response to John? John came. He played the dirge. They said, I don't like dirges. They're too dirgy. And Jesus came. He came bringing the wedding of God, the wedding supper of the Lamb that you can come back out onto the dance floor with Jesus and get reconciled to God and enter in to that thing that he intended you to be in the beginning, that life with all of the planets and the constellations and the stars and all the creatures in heaven and earth all circling God in an incredible dance of worship and joy and adoration. He's inviting you back in and they're saying, I don't like dances. Dances are too dancey. What did they say about John, he came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. And what did they say about the Son of Man? He came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's the real issue. It's an issue of control. I want to be the one calling out the tunes. I don't want to dance to somebody else's tune. You know, and if you believe in Jesus, if you say 
that you realize that what he's saying about himself does have intellectual credibility, then you're giving up all control over your life, all authority to chart your own destiny. You're giving up your right to self-determination. And unbelief is a hard issue that makes you impregnable to a world of evidence. Now, Tim Keller uses the illustration of, of uh, the dead man walking. It's a, it's a very old illustration. Um, you know, imagine, for example, you have a friend, and your friend is convinced that he's dead. And you're talking to your friend, and you're obviously concerned for him. You're concerned for his mental health, for his stability, you know, what it is that's going on inside of him. And you're trying to help him understand that, no, you know, Robert, you are not dead. And Robert says, no, but I'm dead. I know I'm dead. I'm, I'm just convinced of this. I know I'm actually dead right now. And, and so you try to help him, and so you say, come up with this great idea. You say, I'm going to go get three medical textbooks. The best textbooks, you know, top-notch, you know, best scholarship there is out there, and, and you get them, and you, you go through, and you find the passages in them, and, and you show them how first, the first one says that dead people can't bleed. You show them that, and you say, see what, this is top research. It says dead people don't actually bleed, at least not once they've been dead a little while. Uh, he says, oh, that's interesting. And you show them the second one, and it says that dead people don't bleed. And you show them the third one, and it says that dead people don't, don't bleed. And you, 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 Ask, you know, Robert, do you understand what this is saying? Yeah, it's saying that dead people don't, don't lead. And you say, you know, can I hold your hand, Robert? Yeah. And you, you then, uh, you know, grab an X-Acto knife and stab it right through his hand. And his eyes get really huge and he looks up at you and you're like, I'm sorry. Um, but look down at your hand. Get, don't do this at home. Play the dirge game or the wedding game. Don't play the exacto game. But, but you know, he's looking at it and, and you see, Robert, do you see what that is coming out of your hand? Yeah, an exacto knife. No, but I've removed the exacto knife. Robert, do you see what that is coming out of your hand now? It's like, oh my gosh, you know what that is? That's, that's, is that blood? It's like, that's blood, Robert. That's blood coming out of your hand because I just stabbed your hand. Do you know what that means? Do you understand the significance of this? Yes, I do. You realize how serious this matters. Yes, I do. Okay, now, Robert, what does it actually show you? It shows me that all of medical science is wrong. You see, when something strikes at your core convictions, you will deny a world of evidence so that you can reinterpret that evidence in light of your core convictions. And if your core conviction is that you will not yield control of your life and destiny to anyone but yourself, then no matter what Jesus does around you, you will find a way to interpret it away. It's, it's, what, it's what the Pharisees had been doing. It's what was going on perhaps certainly among the religious leaders in these towns. They had interpreted Jesus. They saw him performing miracles. They saw it with their own eyes. They acknowledged that he was performing miracles and they were saying that he was doing them how? In the power of Beelzebub or in the power of Satan. It's what we have in the Babylonian uh, Talmud, which is a collection from several centuries later of of 1st and 2nd century Jewish writers. Uh, And in it, they call Jesus a sorcerer. Uh, We think that means magician. It was different. A sorcerer was somebody who was possessed by evil spirits that gave him the ability to perform miracles. They interpreted him in light of, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 13, what in Hebrew is called the Mesith the beguiler of the people, the false prophet that will come and will try to lead you away. Uh, you see there, what was threatened among the religious establishment, but their, their power. And so they find a way to reinterpret the evidence, just like the dead man 
who is walking. Uh, Unbelief refuses to consider the possibility that I'm not competent to run my own life, that I'm not the ultimate arbiter of what's true. Um, Think of Aldous Huxley, uh, a famous unbeliever, if you will. Uh, In the 1920s, he said he could not accept Christianity. Why? Because he said Christianity is not rational. It's mystical. In the 1960s, shortly before his death, his viewpoint had changed drastically. He couldn't accept Christianity. Why? He said Christianity was too rational. It wasn't mystical. Played the flute, you wouldn't dance. Played the dirge, you wouldn't mourn. What's the real issue? Why would somebody prefer a legalistic religion of the Pharisees that leaves you continually on a performance treadmill, never knowing that you are loved, never knowing that God accepts you, never being reconciled or having a real relationship with God? Why would somebody prefer insecurity and uncertainty and, and, and all of that dreaded religiosity to a message of free and abounding grace and love in Christ? If it's all by grace, if Jesus has done that much for you, then there is no limit to what God could ask of you. If you're saved by grace, you lose power. And that's the issue. Unbelief is a smokescreen for the real issue, which is control. Okay, so where do the dirge and the dance come together? The dirge, John's bad news, tells us we saw that we need to repent, that we need a Savior. And that certainly strikes at my pride and it strikes at your pride because it's saying that we are so bad that we need somebody to save us. We don't need a consultant. We don't need a coach. We don't need a guide. We don't need a program. Those are all means of self-help that would boost our pride. Every other religion appeals to your pride by telling you there's some ritual you can perform. There's some secret knowledge you can gain. There's something that you can do to make yourself whole. You're not really all that bad. There is hope right there in you. And John's message says, no, there isn't. We are hopeless without a Savior. We need somebody to come in and rescue us all by his choice, all by his power. It it exposes me as a sinner, as an enemy of God, as a rebel without a chance apart from his grace. And it's incredibly honest, more honest than any religion or or philosophy, and frankly more... more pessimistic about human nature. You know, Freud said that most men are trash. He never said that Freud was trash. Uh, Religions give you something you can do. But here we see our shame exposed in terrifying honesty. It is a dirge. It's the end of all of our self-righteousness. And it's incredibly pessimistic. And and I know some of you are Americans. And so this is going to strike, particularly strike home for you. You know, you picture the father saying, wait a minute, boy. We've heard this before. You've heard this before. If you want anything in this life, you've got to work for it. You've got to earn it. Nobody in this family is ever going to take no charity. God helps those who do what? Yeah, but he doesn't. That's John's message. There's no way you can help yourself. It's that bad. That's the dirge. Listen to the dirge. There's nothing we can do. We need a Savior. And yet if that is more pessimistic than any philosophy or religion... The message of Jesus is the dance, and it is more optimistic than any religion or philosophy out there because the good news of Jesus, the dance tells you that 
of God's love for sinners, of his grace, uh, that, that the divine one himself entered the cosmos in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that, that this most amazing man to ever live was more than a mere mortal. He was not a teacher pointing the way, but he was the way to which teachers point. Uh, we were captive by a great evil, by a great darkness that had control of us. We were thinking we were in control when in fact the darkness had enveloped and enslaved us completely and the Son of God came into the world to purchase the price of your freedom and he purchased it fully and finally and forever because he loved you to free the worst of sinners like me. That's also offensive. Are you telling me that a criminal can go rob liquor stores, break into banks, steal people's money, leave a trail of victims and broken relationships his entire life, and then at the end of his life say he's sorry and ask Jesus to forgive him, and he can go to heaven just like that? Yes. And the fact that you have a problem with that makes me far more concerned with the state of your soul than the state of that criminal's soul, because that's the dance. We're that bad, but we are that loved, and grace is that radical that you can get right with God in just a second by saying, okay, Jesus, I trust you. Save me. That's what Matthew heard. He was that guy. He was the tax collector. He was the chief of all sinners. He was the mafia. He was the criminal syndicate in his town. And he saw Jesus walk up to him at his little tax collector's booth. And Jesus said, follow me. And he did it. And it completely changed his life. It set him free. And it's that easy because it's all done by Jesus. This is where the dirge and the dance come together. They come together at the cross of Christ. Jesus says here that wisdom is proved right by her actions. And the background of that would be Proverbs chapter 8, the passage that Marilyn read earlier uh, in the service. Jesus is saying uh, that I am that wisdom incarnate. It's what John says in John 1.1, in Arche Ein Halagos, in the beginning was the Word. The word in Jewish thought was tied to the wisdom of God back in Proverbs. The wisdom of God that walked in the presence of God from eternity. The wisdom of God that Proverbs tells us was there in the beginning when God created the cosmos. And John picks that up in John 1.1. Jesus is saying, this is me. I am wisdom. I am proved right by what I do. I was the one through whom the world was made, and I'm the one who can bring the dirge and the dance together on the cross where wicked, deserving uh, people who deserve punishment find complete salvation, peace with God, acceptance, and security. God making him who had no sin to take our place and be sin for us, and God taking his righteousness and crediting it to our account so that we are now worthy because we are clothed in the worth of of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God. It's not a formula to grab hold of, but a person to grab hold of and a person by whom you must be grabbed hold if you are going to have life abundant and full in God. I want to tell you about a someone. It's, his name's Guillaume Bignon. I think we've got a picture of him. Uh, if we could get the slide there. You know, with the attacks in Paris... Uh, some time back, we've been, 
I know I've been praying for the French because, you know, atheism is rife in France and the French need the gospel uh, greatly. And Guillaume Bignon, about 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago, um, became a Christian, and now he's a Christian philosopher and theologian. Um, and I want to share his story. He's, this is in his, in his own words. He says, if French atheists rarely become Christians, how much rarer is it for one to become an evangelical Christian theologian? What happened? One might argue that with 66 million French people, I'm just a fluke, an anomaly. I'm inclined to see it as the work of God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Hearing the facts may help you decide for yourself. He writes, I grew up in a wonderfully loving family in France near Paris. We were Catholic, a religious expression that seemed to arise for us more out of a tradition and perhaps superstition than conviction. As soon as I was old enough to tell my parents I didn't believe any of it, I stopped going to Mass. I pursued my own happiness on all fronts, benefiting from my parents' loving dedication. It allowed me to do well at school, to learn to play the piano, to get involved in many sports. I studied math and physics and engineering in college. I graduated from a respected engineering school and landed a job as a computer scientist in finance. On the sports front, after I grew to be six feet four inches and discovered I could jump three feet in the air, uh, I ended up playing volleyball in a national league and traveling the country every weekend for games. An important part of young male French atheist ideals, he writes, consisted of female conquests, and here I was starting to have enough success to satisfy the standards of the volleyball locker room. All in all, I was pretty happy with my life. And in a thoroughly secular culture, the chances of ever hearing the gospel, let alone believing it, are incredibly slim. When I was in my mid-twenties, my brother and I vacationed in the Caribbean. One day, returning from the beach, we decided to hitchhike home. A car pulled over. Two young women visiting from America were lost and needed directions to their hotel. Incidentally, it was right next to our house, so they gave us a ride. They were attractive enough that my radar went off immediately, and we started flirting. The one I was interested in happened to mention that she believed in God, by my standards, intellectual suicide. She also said she believed that sex belongs in marriage, an even more problematic belief than theism, if that were at all possible. Nevertheless, once the vacation ended, I returned to Paris, she to New York, and we started dating my new goal in life was to disabuse my girlfriend of her beliefs so that we could be together without antiquated notions of God or sex standing in the way. I started thinking, what good reason was there to think God exists? And what good reason was there to think atheism was true? Uh, this step was important because my own unbelief rested comfortably on the fact that smart people around me didn't believe in God either. It was more of a reasonable life assumption than a conclusion of a solid argument. But of course, if I were going to refute Christianity, I first needed to know what it claimed. And so I picked up a Bible. At the same time, I figured there was at least one experiment I could carry out. So I thought, if any of this is true, then the God who exists presumably cares greatly about this project of mine. So I started to pray into the air If there's a God, then here I am. I'm looking into this. 
Why don't you go ahead and reveal yourself to me? I'm open. I wasn't. But I figured that if God existed, that wouldn't stop him. A week or two after my unbelieving prayer, one of my shoulders started to fail me. Without any accident or evident injury, my shoulder would burn out 10 minutes into every single practice. I just couldn't spike the ball. The doctor couldn't see anything wrong with me. The physical therapist didn't help. But I was told that I needed to rest my shoulder and stop playing volleyball for a couple of weeks. They played on weekends. Against my will, I was now off the courts. With my Sundays suddenly available, I decided I would go to a church to see what Christians do when they get together. I drove to an evangelical Protestant congregation in Paris, visiting it as I would a zoo, to see exotic animals that I had read about in books but had never seen in real life. I remember thinking that if any of my friends or family could see me in this church, I would die of shame. He says, I don't remember a word from the sermon. As soon as the service ended, I jumped up and hurried to the exit door, avoiding eye contact so I wouldn't have to introduce myself. I reached the back door, I opened it, and literally had one foot out the door when a chilling blast went up from my stomach all the way to my throat. And I heard myself saying, this is ridiculous. I have to figure this out. And so I put my foot back in. I closed the door and I went straight to the pastor. So uh, you believe in God? Yes. Smiling, he said. So how does that work out? Well, we could talk about it, he said. And after most of the people left, we went to his office and spoke for hours. I bombarded him with questions and we met again over several weeks. He, he patiently and intelligently explained his worldview. And I nervously started to consider that all of it could perhaps even be true. My unbelieving prayers shifted to this. God, if you are real, you need to make it clear so I can jump in and not make a fool of myself. I started to hope that he would open the sky and send down light. What followed was less theatrical and more brutal. God reactivated my conscience. This was not a pleasant experience. At the same time I had started my investigations, I had also come to commit a particularly sinister misdeed, even by atheistic standards. Though I knew exactly what I had done, I had shoved it down inside, and yet God brought it back to my mind in full force, and I finally saw it for what it was. I was struck with an immense guilt, crippled with chest pain and disgusted at the thought of what I had done and the lies I had covered it with. I was lying in pain in my apartment near Paris when all of a sudden the quarter dropped. Um, I think he means like the coin dropped. It's, it's idiomatic and crossing languages. It's like that covenant seminary instructor who would always say something like, well, I will become the parent of a chimpanzee. And you'd think, and three days later, you'd realize he was trying to say, I'll be a monkey's uncle, but it just didn't translate. So um, his quarter dropped. Uh, I was lying in pain in my apartment near Paris when all of a sudden the coin dropped. That is why Jesus had to die. It was because of me. He who knew no sin became sin on my behalf so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus took upon himself the penalty that I deserved so that in God's justice, my sins would be forgiven. My grace, by grace alone, as a gift of God, rather than by my righteous deeds or religious rituals, Jesus died so that I might live. And I placed my trust in Jesus. I asked him to forgive me in the way that Scripture promised he would. He continues, Now now that everything was out in the open, I assumed God wanted me to marry my Christian girlfriend, and so I moved to New York. We quickly learned that we were absolutely not meant for each other, not now, not ever. But now, uprooted and alone with time on my hands, I was passionate about studying my newfound faith in order to explain it to my friends and to my family. I read book after book. I watched lectures and debates. I loved every moment of it. Eventually, it was all I did in my free time. I figured that if I was going to spend all of my time and energy studying about Christianity, I might as well get a degree out of it. So I applied for seminary and eventually obtained a master's degree in New Testament. Then in the process, I met a wonderful woman. I got married. I had two children. I pursued my studies with a PhD program in philosophical theology. This, Guillaume writes... This, in short, is how God takes a French atheist and makes a Christian theologian out of him. He says, I was not looking for God. I neither sought him nor wanted him. He reached out. He loved me while I was still a sinner. He broke down my defenses and decided to pour out his undeserved grace that his son might be glorified and that I might be saved from my sin by grace through faith and not by my own works. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. That is the gospel and it's good news worth believing. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for the gospel of Christ and I give you thanks, Lord, for the freedom with which we can come to him. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to prepare. All we need to say is say, Jesus, okay, I trust you. I thank you, Lord, for the freedom we have even in meeting you in this meal. We consecrate to you this bread and this cup, Lord, that you administer your radical grace to us that we might know that we are accepted by you, that you have loved us, that you are wild about us, that that we are the apple of your eye, that you would give up everything in order to have the thing you wanted most, which was us. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.